0: I'm going to do something a little different today. We're going to end up showing a video. Um, As we've been walking through the Minor Prophets, I'm just... uh, I make mention that the first two times I read through the Bible, I was in high school. I grew up in a Christian home, and there was a sense that, in my heart, that this was going somewhere, and I wanted to be reading through the Scripture. And I remember getting into the uh, the read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year things, and of course, I would read rapidly up through or into Deuteronomy, probably in that first week, and then I'd forget about it for a month, and then I was already behind, and then I'd try to catch up. By the time I got to the Minor Prophets, it was just get this thing done, and uh, as I walked through that, the first times in reading Scripture, I never had access to study guides or anything like that, and so some of these books were just mysteries to me, and every now and then I'd find a nugget that it was like, oh, this this could be valuable, or this could apply to me, or, you know, but by and large, it was just a barren land, and so that said, um, you know, most of those books have come alive to me now, but in walking through Zechariah this last week and trying to like, do the overviews like I've been doing and, and maybe open those up a bit, I found a Bible resource that I think is valuable. and uh, It's a YouTube video, uh, which, yay YouTube, but uh, I want to play that this morning, so it's going to be a little bit different. Well, it's about eight minutes. It'll give you a summary of the book of Zechariah. If you go to a website called Bible Project, you'll see the listings that they have. You're going to have to hunt a little bit to find them. But uh, that's what it's going to look like initially. And then let's go to the the video Zechariah.
1: The book of the prophet Zechariah The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. and We are told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There is an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that is concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old, it goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile, are almost up, is now the time for the Messianic Kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill the those promises but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they are both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket and we are told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. The third and sixth visions are paired as they are both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It is an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the New Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the New Jerusalem is a place that is purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection and they are about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So, Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes, but then those are taken off and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people and Joshua will become a symbol of the future Messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who is leading the temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it is the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It is Joshua the high priest again and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God. Which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah and a group of Israelites come and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years and they ask him, Is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, This generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer and the book just moves on. And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters 1 to 8. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters 9 to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then all of a sudden this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel, and then he's rejected. First by his own people, but then also by their leaders who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds and it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It is another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It is very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the New Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new Garden of Eden and there is a river of living water flowing out of the temple bringing the connection. The of creation and that is how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about.
0: The dreams in this particular book are so, so out there, so to speak, that it's easy to get distracted by them. Uh, And yet, the New Testament writers, uh, according to one study, say that as many as uh, 54 of the passages are used in like 67 different places. And the book of Revelation uses a lot of that imagery. And even in regard to Jesus, uh, there are a lot of quotes that you go through and you go, this is incredible. Uh, Zechariah 9. Matthew 21 says, your king has come unto you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, full of the beast of burden. Remember reading that in the New Testament? Zechariah. Another one, uh, you will, many will fall away, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus was warning his disciples, uh, there's, you know, this is prophesied beforehand. This is going to take place, so just be aware. Uh, later on, he goes, when uh, Judas had taken the money and then threw it back in the temple, and they're going, we can't spend blood money. What do they buy a potter's field, right, for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah. Um, John chapter 19, it says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced, and there's a mourning or a regret of what they've done. Again, this goes back to Zechariah. So in regard to Jesus' coming, it's just a, a powerful declaration 500 years in advance of what's going to take place. Um, so, you know, in that sense, it's valuable to read through and say, wow, this really is God working, speaking through this guy to accomplish things that we don't dream about. I mean, who can see 500 years in advance now? I mean, what, what's that going to look like, and what's going to be taking place? If I find that phone, I'm going to break it. <laughs> saying. Now, (laughs) one other thing I want you to note in regard to um, Zechariah, there are three men that can really help out with understanding this book. Uh, Ezra, if you read through the book of Ezra, that comes right after Chronicles. It's long before Zechariah, but the time period is the same. Ezra is a priest, but he's also the historian. So he's recording the return of the exile and the building of the temple. So that's what's going on during this season. And so if you want a historical perspective, you're going to have to read that book. Then you find out two other things Zerubbabel is not just a Bible name that's kind of a weird name, or is this, you know, is this some angel or something? I mean, Zerubbabel, who's ever heard of that name? But in that day, it wasn't all that unusual. But what it's declaring is the governor of this particular region and over Jerusalem in particular, his name is Zerubbabel. So when you see that, you go, oh, it's that guy in history. The other one that used to give me fits was Joshua. I'm going, I know who Joshua is. He, he, you know, he, he entered the new land they conquered, right? Wrong Joshua. Oh, okay. So you, there's another Joshua? Yeah, it's, if you read Ezra again you're going to see that there's a high priest named Joshua. Where it really gets complicated is that this Joshua is the same name as our Jesus. But we understand the Greek pronunciation of it, Yeshua. In other words, the J isn't loud in most of these pronunciations. So if you're going to say, this this points for Jesus, yes, but it also points through the person of Joshua Specifically in name even of Jesus. So there's a Joshua who's living in in Old Testament times, is talk about this priest, but it's also forecasting another Joshua that's to come, the person we know as Jesus. So it's powerful as far as the picture and even the complexity of what we are tying into. Um, there's one other facet of this that I want you to note. In the book of Ezra, it says that when they came back, they started building on the temple right away. Took them two years to get to a place of laying the foundation. Well, then the other people of the region, the ones that had been there, really get upset. And so they go back to the Persians and say, these rabble-rousers are building the temple and all they're going to do is is cause a, a rebellion in the land. And so... Through their political shenanigans, not that we've ever seen anything like that in our day, but through their political goofiness, the temple gets stopped. You know, and even though it had been commanded, go ahead and rebuild this thing, then the, another is in place and they say, no more of this. It stops for 17 years. Then you have Haggai and Zechariah coming around saying, God says this thing's going to get rebuilt. It's time for us to rebuild this thing. And so Zechariah's message is going to the governor and to the high priest. And he's saying, It's time, it's time, it's time. And, the, and you can imagine a, a person like Zechariah, who had been building, having that project shut down for 17 years, and suddenly somebody's going, Get ready, you're going to finish this thing. Well, they start in again, and four years later, it's done. So historically, we we recognize that this guy's giving all these incredible dreams. He's calling them to activity. But at the same time, there is a, a, a historical time and place where this message was really, really important, as well as pointing to the future. One other, um, well, let's... I'm just going to move on. Okay. There are a few things that I want you to note in a way of application because it's not just about us learning the history of things, right? And we're not just trying to figure out point in time and say, oh, well, I understand the, the layout of this book. But there's a message for us today as well. And so when we walk through a, a book like this, it, it, it challenges our heart because there are things that, are going to, that we're going to find that say, the same God that spoke to the people back then is the God that's dealing with us now. And the way that he deals with people then is the same way that he deals with us now. And if we'll understand those patterns and the way that he does things, then we can put our lives in position to, to prosper under his care and under his oversight. That's why when Charlie's saying obedience is important, we find that in places like this. You know where he's saying, "Your your forefathers were disobedient" in this opening section, and he's going, and it it was at great cost. You know, as promised that you are going to be hauled off for seventy years and then brought back. So they're back, but does that change things? Well, you've got to put yourself into place and say, "We need to start walking into obedience, and we need to start applying what God has said to our lives." I want to take just a portion of chapter four. There's the vision of um, the the lampstand with the bowl, and then the, the seven uh, um, lanterns going out of that, and then also the the fl- seven flames out of each, and then the two olive trees on each side, one on each side, and, and so that part of it is kind of I don't know what's going on here, but thankfully we have some application. But let's get into some of the specifics of the message then. He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. They've been 17 years waiting and nothing taking place. They had a good start, and then it was frustration. So they had this dream. They got into the application of it. They got the foundation laid, and then it just died. Have you ever seen a house that had just the foundation or the basement done and the top and then they ran out of money? Or something went wrong, and it just fell apart, and you're going, what a sad situation. Can you imagine being this group of people and, and all as a group? We got back to Jerusalem. God answered His promise. Here we are, and then nothing it's just dead in the water. So the frustration of that is something that's just, it's been a part of them for years, and, and what, part of what Haggai and Zechariah are going after is saying, you know what? It's not by your strength, it's not by your power, but it's by the Spirit of God that this thing's gonna get done. So there's something that we need to gather to ourselves that at times when our dreams die, it's not just a time to make do, as best we can. It's not just a time to say, we thought we had it and it died and it just, I, don't, I still don't understand it. So let's just make the most of a bad situation. We'll grit our teeth and we'll walk through this. He's going, it's not by your strength. It's not just gritting your teeth, so to speak. It's not just by trying to figure another path. This is going to have to come through the Lord. And there are times in our lives when we're looking and say, I don't have answers, but a book like Zechariah would call us to hope even though we don't have the answers. That's a powerful thing. It's to look and say, you know what? This thing seems like a futility. And it's been a number of years since anything took place. But God has good intent, and His desire is to see it fulfilled. If you can apply that to the dreams that He's given you, it's an amazing thing to, not, to hold your hope, so to speak, and not give up. And to recognize that we continue to walk by faith. It's the Abraham thing of, of not having the child born right away. It's a steady picture in the Scripture of this perseverance that says, I'm going to continue walking in faith even though I don't know how this is going to come together. I don't know how to make it work. I can't make this happen on my own. Nevertheless, if it's a promise of God, it's going to be fulfilled. So Zechariah is calling to Joshua, the high priest, and he's going, not by might. Not by power, to Zerubbabel, the governor. By the Spirit of God, this is going to take place. He goes on to say, in the hands of Zerubbabel, the foundation, um, and I, I skipped a verse, but I want it. Who are you, O great mountain, for Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. He shall bring forward the top stone to the shouts of grace, grace to it. Um, there are a couple things. Remember Jesus saying, if you declare this mountain shall be removed, it's like alluding to this passage. It's like saying, there's a mountain in my life that I can't get over, I can't get around, I can't get through. God is able to flatten that thing into a plane. And so there's that hope that stays strong in us. And then, you know, this, what he's saying is he's going to put the capstone on. In other words, the guy that started this project He's the one that's going to get to finish it as well. He says he's putting a capstone on, and the contemporary English version says it this way. He says, they're going to have shouts of, God has been very kind. I like that. I like that idea of just declaring, as it's fulfilled and as it's finished, God has been very kind in this process. It says, the hands of Zerubbabel laid the foundation, his hand shall complete it. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. Again, the plumb line is, doesn't get used much in our day. We're into levels and laser levels and things like that. It's a tool of the trade for construction. It's an essential part of it. And he's saying, Zerubbabel is like a master craftsman. He will finish this task. The guy that started the building, he's going to get it done. See the plumb line? That's just a declaration that he's going to get to finish this as this construction project takes place. Um, Let's go on to another passage. Uh, Chapter 6, Jesus the branch. Again, I mentioned Joshua and Yeshua and Jesus. All of those get described differently, and the translators can't always even put it in this, to the same phrasing because sometimes the names mean different in different languages. So it gets very complicated when they're trying to figure out, you know, what, what, what term do we use here? Our Jesus comes from the Greek roots, but, you know, the, the Aramaic or Hebrew had different ways of pronouncing it. Remember when, when God is telling Joseph, he says, Name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins? Joshua in the Old Testament, that name meant God helps. So God helps, God saves. It's, it's the same idea. And so, that, with that in mind, it says, Take from the silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua. The son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: Behold, a man whose name is the Branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord." So, in the here and now or that day, he goes to the high priest and puts a crown on him, say, "This is going to get done." But there's a a further application to this. Remember, Charlie brought up Saul taking on the priestly role and saying, "You know, God was going to allow that." In this particular passage, there's, a, there's said a day is coming when the priest and king roles will be tied together. And it's not going to be a bad thing. In the Old Testament, you had three forms of leadership among the Israelite people. You had the prophet, or, excuse me, you had the elders at the city gates, they would have regularly make decisions. You had the kings that would oversee the land, but you also had the priests. So you had those three areas of elder, elder, king, and priest that gave decisions. The intermingling of that is prophesied where the king and the priest, that role is going to be united. And so he places his crown on the priest and makes his declaration, and he goes... It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal blood and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne. The council of peace shall be with them both. So he is intimating that royal blood and priesthood are going to be intermingled. How does that work? Except that through Jesus, you have a new temple. Remember, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus, something new temple-wise was going to take place. Through Jesus, the priest and the king role are going to be united. Through Jesus, the son of David is going to come and develop something new. And through his life, there's going to be a sacrifice. Our great high priest. You know, it, it's, the picture is beginning to get definition through writers like this. Jeremiah links the two together and and says, um, David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute judgment and righteousness on the land. So the idea that all of this would be combined, it's, it's powerful, but it's intimated 500 years before Christ. As I read earlier, the coming of Jesus the first time, they talked about him being pierced. They talked about the sheep scattering. They, you know, there were numerous prophecies that this hero was not going to be received as he should be. Zechariah doesn't leave it there. He also presents a picture of the final days and the final end of things. And so he pictures also the triumphant Savior coming back. In Zechariah chapter 14, he says a a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil shall be taken you and be divided in your midst and I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. That's not a good picture, right? He says there's coming a time when all of the nations are going to march down on Jerusalem and it's going to be a horrible thing. In that time, it says the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Remember the mountains being turned into plain? He says there is coming a time when the hero of the ages is going to come back and he will step onto the Mount of Olives and at this huge battle... And the whole thing just shakes out. And, he's, and he goes on to make some other statements. He says, it's not going to be day or night. It's not going to have light. It's not going to be frost or cold. It's just, gonna, it's just a different, different moment. But it's something that you and I say, okay, we didn't see that with the coming of Christ the first time. But in our hearts, knowing that all these other things came true, there's this expectation of the future and an acknowledgment that Christ is going to return with his holy ones, it says. And there's something unlike we've ever seen before, a final battle. So when we read the Scripture and we go back through times like this, we look at it and say, well, I can see enough to say that this guy had some incredible accuracy, even though the pictures are, are, are unusual but there's also this expectation of a future that I cling to in hope a lot more than 17 years, a lot more than the 500 to Jesus the first time, but same, that, same hope and expectation that says, God made the declaration, it's going to happen, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so we take that for ourselves. We take it in, in microcosm that says, The things that I'm struggling through, God in His graciousness has declared that He will take me through this, and it will come out in a way that is valuable in my heart and for His kingdom, and I can trust Him with all of that. The things that seem like insurmountable mountains, I don't have to worry about. There's a knowledge that this is going to transpire in a way that brings honor and glory to Him anyway. The things that I can look at in regard to nations and the future, and I don't know how that's all, it doesn't really matter. I trust in his ability to make it happen. And that's why with expectation, we look forward to a day when Christ shall return again. What incredible hope that is. Uh, we're going to enter into communion. It's your time to shine, Cody. There we go. Um, what I'd... What I'd like to do as we walk through this, um, the the early message of Zechariah and what was revisited later in the book was that we set our hearts up for the presence of God to dwell in us and work through us. In other words, he opens the door, but we have to step into that and as was mentioned we we step forward in obedience, but sometimes that means just weeding the junk out of our lives and separating things so that we can participate in wholeness um, i 'll give you a personal example. Um, in recent times i've been looking for authors that uh, at times, I read fiction books just to um, to just kind of relax. In fact, um, I don't generally watch TV programs, don't generally watch movies, but now and then, a, a book will allow me to relax in a way that nothing else does. Finding authors who aren't continually promoting sensuality or profanity or even write well, is <laughs> difficult. You know, I, I, I'm always on the look for something like that because, you know, there are times you're going, I don't want to go down this path because that's not good for my mind to dwell on that. Or I don't want these words floating through my mind all the time when I'm doing enough to try to stay away from that. And, and <laughs> you know, sometimes you find that and you're really... This is such a terrible writer, I just can't stand it, you know, and you, another one gone. That said, you know, I, I was sorting through these things and I'm just going, I'm halfway into a book and it, it's poorly written, and it's like, next. But I feel like that's opening a door so that I'm in a place where God can, can speak, you know, you don't want to fill yourself with junk. And is there a law? Guess? No, but it's it's like, if I want to step into holiness and I want to step into everything that He has for me in life, then it means decision making that sorts through these things. And quite honestly, there's a lot of Christian books that aren't worth reading either, or carry the label Christian. You know, it just, you know, you in the Lord, you have the right to ask, is this valuable for me or not? Sometimes non-Christian authors can really put across a point that you're going, I needed to think on this. But it's, again, what is is God speaking to you and submitting it before him? And just saying, I want everything you have for me, and I want to know you in, in all fullness, and so I'm opening up my life for you to speak and bring stuff in and take it out as you will. When we come to communion, I'm pointing at a table that's empty, but you know what I mean. (laughs) We are encouraged to reflect and evaluate and examine ourselves is the term that I grew up with. And in that, in this moment, we just say, Lord, um, if if you want to sort through, sift through my life, so to speak, and bring to mind anything that needs to be dealt with or changed or you know, maybe you want to bring something into it, or maybe you want to take something out. of it. This is a good time to evaluate that and just say, Lord, I'm open. And then just see where he takes it. Because you know, it might be that you don't hear anything in the moment, or it might be that you go, I know exactly what, what needs to happen. And then I encourage you, even though it might be one of those moments where you're going, well, how am I going to live differently? Just do it. Because you know that he doesn't remove or put into your life anything except what it can have great value. Now and in the future. And so we trust him in that way. We continue in our hope with that. I want to pray for God's blessing upon you. Remind you there's opportunity for prayer. Just encourage you to go home and read the book of Zechariah. Joy. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May discover with joy that holiness is a privilege and an opportunity to live within your, your plan and your orchestration of all that is desired for life. I ask as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. Amen.